The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in His kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. God is my shepherd, I won't be wanting, I won't be wanting. He makes me rest in fields of green with quiet streams. And even though I walk through valley of death and dying I will not fear cause you're with me you're always with me your shepherd's down comforts me you are of enemies that surely goodness will follow me will follow me yeah your shepherd's staff comforts me you are my feast in the presence of enemies that surely of God forever in the house of God forever in the house of God forever Welcome, friends. I'm so grateful and excited that you are choosing to be here with us today. And I don't know if you're on your sofa, maybe you're in bed, maybe in your dining room, your backyard, maybe you're in Houston, maybe you are somewhere else in the US or even around the world. I want to tell you that you are welcome here. And as we continue our worship, would you join me as I pray this prayer of invocation over all of us? God, our creator, Jesus, our redeemer, and Holy Spirit, our comforter, we thank you for inviting us into your presence in this hour in this way where we get to hear a message from your servant, Pastor Michael, where we get to listen to the worship of our amazing worship team, where we get to be guided in prayer by some of the other staff at our church. And God, you know that some of us are coming to this service in mourning 
in loss and in disappointment. And others of us are coming to this service in celebration and joy and hope. And probably a lot of us are coming with both. And God, we know that you can hold us in the tension of the celebration and mourning. And we are praying for your blessing that somehow during this hour, we would felt seen by you and loved by you. Amen. Just kiss me. 
it is there that I will know you and you know me in the silence of the heart you speak you Iglesia, now is the time in our service where we share a blessing written by one of our kids. And today I'm really excited to share with you a prayer written by my son, Miles. I'm recording this on Wednesday. Today is his eighth birthday. And he writes this. Lord Jesus, we pray for all the kids at Ecclesia and around the world that they would know you and love you and know that you love them. Help us to look up to you because you teach us how to live and to care for others. Be with us and guide us to love and respect others. Amen, Miles. And now, Ecclesia, would you join me in this continued response in worship through a time of offering, giving back a portion of what God has entrusted to our care, and we can pray these words together. Almighty God, you created everything in the heavens above and in the earth below. You survey all of your creation, and you savor its beauty and appreciate its goodness. To you we lift up the best we have to offer from our time, our talents, and our resources. We give freely from what we have received from your hand. We give joyfully with the gratitude of a rescued people. We give generously with the excitement of children at play. We join with your mission and with your kingdom in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Ecclesia, this is Pastor Chris, and I'm so thrilled that you could worship with us today. Wherever you are, on vacation, at home, I hope increasingly you're gathering not just by yourself. For a little while, it was kind of fun to be in bed with your coffee, and we need each other. And so even if you're just gathering with a group of six or eight people, and maybe you make a Greg Eggs Benedict, I make a pretty decent one, in fact. You may want to come over to my place, and we'll have church together. We're also having church at 9 and 11 at both of our campuses, and I want to encourage you to be there. There's places you can be distant. Uh, downtown, there are places you can be outside. But we want to be together, and we want to worship, and we've learned that we need each other. And if you're like me, I got back in the room, and you know what I loved? I loved the people, and I loved getting some hugs for sure, and I loved hearing the music again. And our band has recorded some of our best, some of the music that we love and that we sing all the time and on all the streaming services, Spotify, Apple, you name it, wherever you get your music, this next week, go and you'll find Ecclesia, Ecclesia Houston, our worship. You're going to be able to get in the car, turn it up and do what I do this week and just sing. People are going to come by and they're going to drive by and like, what, what's going on with that guy? Well, He's worshiping and he's connecting. And I don't know about you, but I need it. And in this new season, there are so many opportunities to connect. That's what we've learned for each of us, that if we're going to be healthy, we got to find some healthy ways to do that. So if you go to ecclesiahouston.org slash groups, you're going to find all kinds of opportunities. We've got new small groups. We've got affinity groups for people that have different interests. In fact, you can help start a group. Uh, eventually, we're going to be doing some other dinners where we're going to help people assimilate into groups. So just show an interest and, and let us know, hey, I want to connect in some way. And then 
I'm hosting a number of dinners still. If you have not been a part of a human practice dinner, I want to invite you. I want to serve you sushi and I want to serve you wine. And I want to ask you some thoughtful pastoral questions about how you're made to live and what your best life might look like. I want to help you uh, take some steps in that direction. And so you can go to the website, ecclesiahouston.org slash human practice. You can sign up and we'll make you aware of all the times I'm hosting and we'll get you on the schedule and we'll have an amazing meal together. That's exactly what we're talking about today. We've been in a series we're calling Reimagine with our friends at Good Shepherd in New York City. We've had great teaching and communicating. We've had some really helpful, practical thoughts on what this new life ought to look like. And today, our dear brother, my good friend, Michael Rudzina, who's the lead pastor at Good Shepherd in New York, is gonna share with us about reimagining togetherness. What, what did we learn from the hard times of feeling alone and isolated or suffocated? Um, by Some of us felt really isolated and alone because we were alone. And some of us felt suffocated because we were crammed in with the same people and we wanted some space. And both were really hard. And today, Michael's gonna help us reimagine what togetherness ought to look like on the other side of this pandemic. It's a beautiful message. It's gonna be really helpful. Let me pray for you as you get to hear words from our dear brother, Michael. Lord, I thank you for so many Ecclesians, for people that I love that are at home or traveling or on vacation, that are gathering with friends. And I pray now that the words of my dear brother uh, would prompt them towards a healthier and a better life, the life that you made them for. And that even though times have been hard for all of us, we've had personal crises in the midst of a national crisis. We've had hard things happen. You've been working in us and through us in the midst of all of that. And so we ask today, God, that you would guide us towards the beautiful life that you made for each of us. May we feel your love and your kindness today. We pray this together and we pray it in your name, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray, amen. Brothers and sisters, this is my good friend, Michael Redzina. Good morning, Good Shepherd and Ecclesia and any other church community joining in with us in this series. We're excited to be reimagining what life could look like on the other side of the pandemic, especially as we're winding down in our experience of that. Today, I'd like to talk with you about reimagining togetherness. How can we process what we experienced in the pandemic together? How can we use our insights to sort of reset how we are together? You know, the first month of quarantine here in New York was like a time capsule, unlike anything that we've ever experienced. We were not supposed to go outside except for absolute necessities. The city determined three absolutely essential uh, operations or institutions, and those could remain open. So we had our grocery stores, we had our pharmacies, and you guessed it, our liquor stores. We watched the news every day to learn how many people had passed away, how many people were in the hospital, how many people had contracted the disease. We religiously tuned in here to Governor Cuomo's press conferences. We listened to him tell us where we were, what we could expect, what the plan was. We saw the footage of dead bodies being stored by the river. And we listened to our exhausted friends who were medical practitioners, sharing how they were overloaded. The system was overloaded. Their emotional status was overloaded and they were stressed out. Every night at 7 p.m., we cheered for them. 
We opened our windows and we heard the clinging of pots and pans and our children gathered around the window and we cheered and we held up signs and it was a little bit of a bright spot in an otherwise very dark moment. We had Zoom calls. We had Zoom calls on Zoom calls on Zoom calls. I had Zoom calls about Zoom calls. I'd transgressively ride my bike out uh, of my apartment up here to this little chapel to preach a sermon, and then I'd ride it back home. And as I rode, I was in the midst of apocalyptically empty streets. No cars, no people. One evening, I was riding my bike through the West Village, a notoriously uh, sort of infused with life neighborhood, especially at night, especially on a Friday night. Only this time, there were no people, there were no cars. And I thought to myself, I have the village to myself. And there was this feeling of exhilaration, but it was followed shortly by a wave of sadness. Rather than a playground buzzing with restaurants, packed out comedy or jazz clubs, I was biking through a kind of prison. And that's how many of us experienced relationships in those days. Whatever our living situation was at the beginning of the pandemic, it was sort of freeze-framed into a temporary prison, only we didn't know how long the sentence was. We were trapped. We lived alone. If we lived alone, then we were trapped in our isolation. If we lived with families or roommates, we were trapped in our togetherness. I was invited as a guest on a news show in the early days as we were processing this new pandemic experience. I was asked to speak on how the pandemic was affecting communities of faith. And I couldn't really go into the studio, so I just set up a, a computer on my living room table. And my wife, Kindy, she brought our four children into the room next to our living area. She sat there, desperately multitasking, trying to pacify two teenagers, a five-year-old, and a very newly mobile one-year-old, who was also quite loud. I did the interview, it went very well, and afterward, my wife watched it. We watched it together, actually. I wanted her to see it. She nodded along as I spoke about this common experience of either isolation or suffocation relationally. But there was a comment where I made the news anchor laughed, and I wanted her to experience that as well. Only when she got to that point, the comment that made the host laugh did not have the same effect for her. Instead, I looked over and I saw what appeared to be rage forming on her face. My comment that made the man laugh was, our experience has been suffocation. We have six humans crammed into a little two-bedroom apartment. This scene of serenity that you see behind me, and at this point I want you to imagine a picture of an empty living room, uh, immaculately clean, tastefully designed and staged. And I pointed behind me, I said, this scene of serenity, it's a minor miracle. Everyone laughed, but not Kindy. A minor miracle? Right? The only miracle is that you weren't struck down by lightning for a bold-faced lie. What are you talking about, I asked. A minor miracle? Right? There's no miracle here, she said. I clean that room. 
right? I styled it. I was the one frantically keeping our children quiet and busy during your interview, right? That was no miracle. That was my crowning achievement. And of course she was right. Comical and tragic moments like that of managing our lives, managing our work, managing our kids if we have them, and our connections or lack thereof became a new kind of burden for all of us. We found pandemic hacks. We watched Tiger King, or we binged the Jordan doc. We had album listening parties or Zoom cocktail hours, and some of that was exciting. But then it got old. Everything sort of got old. We settled into new norms, into new patterns. And I think this is a very unique window in which we live, where the sort of pandemic as it winds down is offering us a kind of wisdom if we have eyes to see and ears to hear. I think this is an opportunity for us to mine our experience and to use it as an opportunity to reset, to reimagine. And today, we ask, what could togetherness look like? You know, there were three primary qualities of pandemic togetherness that most of us experienced two out of the three. Our relationships were either isolated or they were suffocated. And most everything beyond our home was digital. And there was something magical about that at first. I mean, it truly was amazing. It was transcendent even. Right? We could climb over so many walls relationally created by the pandemic through access to simple internet and a screen. I had to stop and marvel many times, especially when I was down and complaining. One of my friends who's a therapist who facilitated some group therapy would often remind me, this is actually quite a remarkable time in history. Can you imagine going through this in 1985? But while this digital transcendence was truly saving our lives, we discovered that digital relationships aren't exactly ideal. In fact, MIT professor and best-selling author Sherry Turkle argues that digital distorts relationships in one critical way, the illusion of control. When it comes to digital relationships, we can ghost people, we can block people, we can offer comments free of that real-time feedback loop of facial expressions or, or vocal tone. When it comes to digital church, you can pause to go make yourself a cup of coffee. You could take a call. You could go to the restroom. If the sermon's dragging on, you could skip forward. If you're a music person or a prayer person or a Eucharist person, you can sort of scrub to the right spot of the service. In our digital relationships, we are by and large comfortably in command. Church and togetherness during the pandemic is now on a different register within our souls. Again, it's amazing. It's transcendent even. But we have so much control and it's missing those critical elements, those critical ingredients that make real human relationships possible, that make love possible. Things like risk, things like vulnerability, things like bodily presence and mutuality. That's human connection. That is what we have often missed. Now, I think it would be tragic to just go back to normal as the pandemic winds down, right? To simply default to those patterns which we knew before our worlds were ups turned upside down. I think this is a time to reflect on our experience. 
How have we been shaped by it? I think it's time to recover a powerful Christian wisdom when it comes to togetherness. You can find it in the great mystics and in the theologians of our great tradition. It's a wisdom that's rooted in Jesus' experience. It's a wisdom that can help us navigate the whiplash of our pandemic versus our post-pandemic togetherness. And as we translate or transition out of either isolating or suffocating relationships and almost everything beyond that digital, how do we come back to in-person gatherings once again? Why is it important? Why is it irreplaceable? What wisdom and guidance can we draw on to reimagine this moving forward? If we want the togetherness that Jesus modeled, if we want the togetherness that the early church leaders promoted, then we need three essential rhythms. We need solitude, we need togetherness, and we need action. This is where the pandemic wisdom is key. I mean, it's important for you to reflect on your story, to share your story. What we lacked, we came to appreciate during that time. What we were forced into, many of us either made our peace with it or we picked up an adapted skill set. Now for me, I immediately missed the quiet. I missed solitude. I missed the me time that was naturally built into my work rhythm and into my day. Many parents know what I'm talking about. Also, I had no idea how important those little embodied interactions at church were for me. I might have written it off casually as small talk or just meaningless chatter before or after a church service. I took it for granted. But in those moments, I could see facial expressions. I could make eye contact. I could get a read on how someone was doing, even if we were talking about the weather. In a moment, in a sermon like this, I could see eyeballs. I could see the fidgeting of fingers or the tapping of toes. I could hear the immediate laughter, the feedback loop, which kind of reminds me of the importance and the electricity of these in-person gatherings. When Saturday Night Live tried to do their first you know, few rounds of uh, quarantine uh, broadcast, it was an automatic dud because They didn't have that feedback loop of laughter to know what was getting traction, what was funny. There's sort of something there that we can't have in quarantine, that we can't have digitally. There's this entire register of presence that's available to us in a face-to-face encounter. If a picture is worth a thousand words, how much is an in-person exchange worth? Now you have your experience too. How can this Christian rhythm of togetherness help us reimagine how we engage? I want to begin with solitude. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, Life Together, argues solitude is essential for Christian community. He says that, and I think, rather, the pandemic made this very apparent in ways that we otherwise resist normally. We either had a new appreciation for it because it was suddenly yanked out of our schedule Or we had so much of it that we realized how to manage it for the first time. Bonhoeffer, along with countless other mystics and stages, says that solitude helps us deal with the biggest barriers of Christian togetherness. 
And one of the biggest barriers he identifies is what he calls this wish dream. Quote, those who love their dream of a Christian community more than they love the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community. Even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, ever so earnest, and even sacrificial. God hates this wishful dreaming because it makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. Those who dream of this idolized community, they demand that it be fulfilled by God, by others, and even themselves. They enter the community of Christians with their demands set up by their own law, and they judge one another and God accordingly. It's not we who build, he said, it's Christ who builds the church. You probably have brought your version of that dream to a church or to a small group or to a friendship. You projected your dream on it, and when it disappointed you, you either fought, you flew away, or you froze in your tracks. This kind of dreaming of importing a previous experience, maybe a good experience, and then demanding it again, it, lack, or it destroys Christian togetherness because it refuses reality. Now, solitude helps us recenter. Solitude is that rhythm in our lives that helps us uh, consent to reality, consent to what is actually in front of us and who is actually in front of us. It sets us free from that sort of uh, visceral reactivity that we find ourselves trapped within when we don't have it. Solitude helps us recenter. It helps us find our grounding in a community, not from a place of deficit, not from a place of need. When we have that deficit, when we have that need, we enter into a community, we enter into a church, into a small group, into a friendship, doomed to codependency. Solitude gives us space, gives us space to observe, gives us an opportunity to connect with God's love, which is at our center, and to be strengthened so we can enter into loving relationships with others. Now, if you don't make room for solitude, then your relationships will become toxic, they become self-referential, and they become largely unreflective. And let me tell you this, if you don't make time to reflect on your relationships, then you become doomed, you become a slave to reflex in your relationships. And we've all experienced at some level the unreliability of our, our reflexes. Carl Jung and many others have argued that we need space between the stimulus of our life and our response. It's in that space that we gain agency, we gain power, the ability to choose, the ability to pivot. When we do that, when we exercise that agency, we offer a gift to our friends. We offer a gift to our communities rather than just following lockstep with our immediate reactions. Jesus did this. He made space to be alone, to recharge, to face his demons, to break the backbone of fear in his life, to reconnect with God's unconditional love for him. This is why he prioritized it. He had a lot of popularity, had a lot of demand as he traveled the countryside, preaching and casting vision for this thing he called the kingdom of God. And as things came to a crescendo, 
moments that we likely would never turn our back on. He gets away. He recharges. He needs to be with God and to be with himself so that he could come back and offer those words and offer that loving and caring behavior as gifts, not simply a knee-jerk response. Now, if Jesus needed this, why do we imagine that we don't? My therapist suggested that I create mental touchstones in my times of solitude. You know, some relationships are really tricky. We get stuck in patterns of relating, and they have this force that sort of snaps us back in, kind of like a magnet. I've been invited to imagine conversations that I'd like to have, to imagine the outcome of those conversations, and to let that be my touchstone to sort of anchor me. And when I want to react, you know, when I feel the gravitational pull of that relationship having its effect on me, I reconnect with that touchstone, which represents my pain and my longing. How much space do you bring to imagining conversations that you'd like to have, thinking about questions that you'd like to ask, outcomes you'd like to experience, whether it's an embrace or a laugh. Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane before his suffering, and he had to be preparing. He had to be imagining the encounters that he would face with the religious leaders and the political leaders in Jerusalem. If you watch Jesus in those encounters, he's not a slave to reactivity. In fact, in most cases, he's quiet as he comes under threat. He seems above the fray, so to speak. And that's because he sweated it out in his imagination and in God's presence, so that when the moment came, he knew his center and he could remain steadfast and free. Solitude is vital as we reimagine togetherness. Now, the second dynamic is is actual togetherness, what some have called community or connection. And this is about the quality of our connections, right? We often settle for proximity without connection, or at least I know I do. Gerhard Lofink, he laments that in the church, we become addicted to the order of our gathering, right? To the happenings, to the events, and that we miss the spark of living connection. Stanley Hauerhaus notes, quote, in such a social order, people too often confuse community with being a crowd, and crowds are intrinsically dangerous. New York is like this. I'm sure Houston is like this to some degree as well. We have proximity, but we don't necessarily have connection. We aren't present to everyone at every moment of every day, and for good reason. If we did this, we couldn't survive. Today, I was walking down the street, and I saw a woman who clearly had had some kind of head surgery, fresh bandaging all over her head, and she was carrying these two really heavy bags, not something I typically expect someone who had recently had surgery to be doing, and she was like screaming at the top of her lungs a Busta Rhymes song. Now, I could ponder that all day long, but if I was that open to every encounter, I couldn't get through my day. We rightly partition those experiences. We rightly move on to the next thing. But if we're not careful, it becomes our default. It becomes an armor that we carry with us in all communities, in all relationships. 
Church can be like this. We show up, and because we were together, we assume that we were connected. But if togetherness is meant to be more, then what are we missing? Kindy often asks me, my wife, she says, after I hang out with a friend, well, how are they doing? And I have to be embarrassed and I have to confess. I often, upon reflection, say, you know, I don't really know. I've been with them, but I've not really been with them. There are different ways to connect. You know, some say side by side, some say face to face. But whatever the ways you're connecting, the question is, are there openings in your relationships? Are there moments of curiosity? Are there good questions? Or are we just filling the space with empty chatter? How can you make space for presence? How can you make space for mutuality, for curiosity, as you reimagine togetherness on the other side of the pandemic? The Bible's way of talking about togetherness is this little phrase, often repeated, one another. We're told to outdo one another in honor. We're told to live in harmony with one another. We're told to welcome one another, admonish one another, greet one another with a holy kiss. That, that's kind of interesting. To wait for one another, to have the same care for one another, to bear one another's burdens, to be servants of one another, to do good to one another, to have compassion, to be kind to one another, to confess our sins to one another to pray for each other, to love one another from the heart, to be responsible and hospitable to one another. That's just a small selection of this often repeated phrase in the Bible. One of my friends told me about the importance of a a little practice called attunement. They're a therapist, and this is one of the things that they know is, is critical to relational health. And they told me, that when it comes to bearing another person's burden, which is critical to Christian togetherness, we have to be connected to how people are doing and how they sense that we care for them. They told me that bearing someone's burden isn't about your action. It's about perception. So many times we're doing things in the name of love. We're doing things that we sense are caring, but they're not landing. They're not registering with the other person. And so Regular open moments, windows to just check in and say, do you sense my care for you? What's it like to know that I am here for you? What's it like to know that I care for you? Those little moments of check-in recover a togetherness that's mutual, recovers a togetherness that's vulnerable, and that's committed to presence. The last rhythm, we have solitude, we have togetherness. The last one is action. And I think we all know this in our gut, that love fundamentally has to be translated into action if it's going to be meaningful. I tell you what, we need this outlet. It's kind of one of those missing elements of love during the pandemic. Love has to go beyond the head and loving thoughts, has to go beyond the heart and loving feelings, and it has to get to action, right? To our hands, to offer, to do, to serve, Love is incomplete without our action. Jesus did stuff to care for people, tangible things. He would share a meal. He would include them. He would stand up for them. He would heal them and deliver them, set them free. We do enough life without action, and we start to believe that we're loving people because we have loving thoughts and loving feelings. 
Very similar to uh, internet activism, AKA slacktivism, because you've retweeted or you've posted about an issue, then you yourself are now an activist. We often get lured into that temptation, into that illusion. And I wanna know, how can you put love into action, especially as you wind down, the pandemic winds down, we have these in-person opportunities. Now we can travel once again, now we can serve. How can you put love into action? How, you, how can you reimagine love as activity, not just thoughts and prayers and feelings? I think we realize there's a strength here in our ability to be together, but sometimes it's a little awkward. And so we pray right now that God would help us, that God would guide our imaginations, that God would help us to become who we're called to be as the church. I ask for God's blessing on you, that you'd be able to step out with a strength of courage, to be vulnerable, to take risks, to put yourself out there, and to try to reset, not simply default to where you were before, but maybe create new grooves in your brain and your spirituality and your lifestyle, to create openings and connections that Jesus himself experienced and that we see the vision for in the Bible. May God give you power and courage as you seek to be together and to reimagine what it means to be together. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Michael, for your words of challenge, comfort, and encouragement about togetherness. And Ecclesia, now is the time where we, you, get to be together with Jesus at this table. This is a table where all are welcome. And this morning I was thinking about just belonging. And you know what? All of you, all of us belong at this table. You know, it doesn't matter if, you know, you are the type of person who during pandemic got a Peloton and stayed fit and trim, or maybe people like me who just doubled down on the tater tots and dark chocolate ice cream. We all belong, and Jesus is inviting all of us to this table. And this is a table of redemption and forgiveness and grace and hope. And yet before we actually partake of the body and the blood, the scriptures remind us to take an interior look, what's going on in our souls as we then feed our bodies. So would you join me now in this confession prayer? You have made us to be free, but we crave the cheap comforts of our chains. You have made us to serve others, but we have eyes only for ourselves. You have made us to love, but we are inflamed with lust. You provide that we may be generous, but we greedily hoard as if your well will run dry. You forgive time and again, but we hold fast to the sins of others. You offer light for our path, but we insist on making our own way. You are the God who saves. Lord, save us from ourselves. In your great mercy, restore and heal us and grant us your peace. Amen. And so as we come again to this table 
that represents that Jesus wants to be together with you. Again, he's extending that invitation to you. And all it requires is your desire to accept that invitation. And so we remember when Jesus gathered with his disciples, his friends, and they shared a meal, he broke bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. When you eat it, remember me. And after the meal, he took the cup. This is blood of my new covenant of this love relationship that I desire to have with you. When you drink it, remember me. And so friends, as we gather together at this table, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. Let us together taste, see, and experience the redemption, the forgiveness, and the hope. Amen. Our benediction is a sonnet by Malcolm Geitz. It's called The Call of the Disciples. He calls us all to step aboard his ship, take the adventure on this morning's wing, raise sail with him, launch out into the deep, whatever storms or floods are threatening. If faith gives way to doubt or love to fear, then as on Galilee will rouse the Lord, for he is always with us and will hear and make our peace with his creative word, who made us, loved us, formed us, and has set all his beloved lovers in an ark. Born upwards by his spirit, we will float above the rising waves, the falling dark. As fellow pilgrims driven towards that haven where all will be redeemed, fulfilled, forgiven. Ecclesia, go to love and to serve, to be the church throughout the week. We love you. God loves you. Dwell in peace. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.